Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Sales leader, quota crusher, champion of grassroots basketball, hockey podcaster, and arguably the OG of Canadian digital media sports sales, Tony Luchasano stops by to chat. A native of Toronto's Little Italy neighborhood, Tony studied biology with the goal of becoming a doctor. To use his words, his grades weren't going to cut it for med school, which quickly shut down that plan. After school, he joined the Financial Post as a business manager, but would move into online financial service sales with the Data Group. Tony's digital ad sales career started with Canoe, but he departed Canoe for TSN, arguably Canada's largest and oldest sports media brand, where he would enjoy a nearly 13-year career. A move to competitor Sportsnet was short-lived after a sales team restructuring. Tony has since turned to consulting, putting his experience and success to work for companies looking for fractional growth and experience to jumpstart their revenue potential. But Tony's move into consulting isn't entirely by design. Like many experienced members of the Canadian media industry, his career has been impacted by ageism. We close out our conversation by discussing the impact ageism has had on his career and why it's important for the industry to reject this form of discrimination. I'm a sales and marketing communication consultant, and what I try to do is help companies achieve some of their sales targets. Uh, After the pandemic, though, it's been a little bit soft. It's been a little difficult, as you can imagine. Uh, What I try to do is I try to find companies who are really don't have a full sales uh, sales force and what i try to do is do some fractional sales for them so that that's the the basic of my consulting company um so i've been in sales a long time and i still have i feel like i have a lot to offer still so you know i wouldn't mind still getting back into the game i'm, I'm you know the consulting gig is okay it's not bad uh but i you know where my my strengths are is working with salespeople and sales staff and companies and uh, trying to reach their goals, help them reach their goals. Tony, thank you so much for stopping by today. I'm looking forward to our chat. Let's go back to the beginning though. Where are you from? Born and raised in the West End of Toronto around the High Park area. Actually, Little Italy, if you want to call it, St. Clair and Lansdowne area. Great Italian family. Uh, Mom was a homemaker, dad a factory worker, very lower middle class, but you know know the way Italian families are. They- uh, Oh yeah, I know that. (laughs) You know it probably as well as I do. Uh, But you know what? It it was a great uh, upbringing. Like I said, lots of friends and lots of sports played in in little, uh, close to Little Italy. And uh, yeah, it was a huge uh, Italian community. And we just had a a blast. So my upbringing was, was fantastic in Toronto. I'm familiar with that neighborhood a little bit for the most part, because you said High High Park, St. Clair. My mom grew up in uh, Dufferin and Rogers Road. Oh, I know it extremely well. Yeah. It was Ital uh, Florist was right there at Dufferin and Rogers Road. Yeah, I know. I know exactly which one you're talking about. You could either get to it by taking the Ossington bus from the station across Rogers Road, or you take the Dufferin bus right north, right from literally the Dufferin subway station. Victor, Those were unique neighborhoods. Man. Yeah, they were. You're a man after my own heart. <laughs> so, did you guys have an alleyway garage as well? No, actually. I was in a in a semi-detached right on a main street, right on Dupont Street. So we did we did have that unfortunately. 
Oh, because that's what I remember about it, too. Okay, so what did your backyard look like? Because it's got to be broken hockey sticks and tomato plants and grapes. Obviously, somebody's been spying on me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, you you nailed it. I didn't have any hockey sticks. I'd have a hockey stick for one season. And then uh, the funniest story I could tell you about that, a quick one, is I used to try to play lacrosse, and I played one game. And I came home and my mom saw my back because it was full of black. It was black and blue from the bruises. And of course, Italian, old Italian mom's just sitting there screaming, what the hell happened? Why did who did this to my son? And my dad then proceeded to saw my lacrosse stick and use the, the, just the shaft as a holdup for the tomato plants. So you, you nailed it with the tomato plants, the basil, the, the basil. I almost said it in Italian, basilico. And then of course uh, there was the parsley, and so there was just all, all my backyard was really was uh, vegetation. That's it. That's what the typical Italian uh, backyard is like. It's, it's literally all garden and maybe a little bit of a deck as well on top of that. Very small deck. Very small. Enough just for a barbecue and a charcoal barbecue. None of this electric you, stuff. It was a charcoal barbecue. No, no did, propane stuff. Did the neighbors ever call the cops on your parents for that? Because my grandparents used to use the charcoal barbecue and if they were having a if they were having a row with the neighbors they would call the fire department the fire department would show up and it would just be like no it's just a regular charcoal barbecue we didn't set anything on fire in the backyard that didn't happen to me but three doors down exactly that that's exactly what happened they called the fire department just three doors (laughs) down which was hilarious it's I, i swear it's almost like you've got a a crystal ball into my past Oh, that was, I spent a lot of time in that neighborhood growing up. So I'm, I'm very familiar with what life is like there, especially too, like kids playing on the street. It was just, it's what, it, it's what you'd expect from a neighborhood. Yeah. You don't see that nowadays. That's for sure. No, the kids are all face down in their phones. Uh, it's kind of sad, but Hey, this is the new world. And you know what? I'm also a basketball referee and I could tell you stories about that as well. I mean, with these kids, I'm just glad that they're playing sports and they're not constantly on their phones though basketball was a big thing for you growing up. Like it is, would you say it's your sport versus hockey? Cause you've been heavily in sports, sports, marketing, sports, sales, you're passionate about sports, but would you say that basketball has been the most pivotal sport to your life? It, it, it was, I had a scholarship offered to Canisius. Now back then it was a D three school for basketball. And I ended up staying at home cause my parents sadly were, were sick. And I ended up going to Seneca I played a year at Seneca, but what ended up happening was I found that school and basketball was just too much. So I concentrated on my studies, which was biology of all the things, right? I know that is pretty crazy. Let's go back to Canisius for a little bit. I'm familiar with yeah. it because I went to Brock University. So I'm cl- I know the border schools. So was that Buffalo or Niagara Falls, New York, Chictawanga? Like I'm, I'm literally throwing out every city possible. From- yeah, you, you, you miss Batavia and, and Hamburg as well. Hammer, uh, that's right. Yeah, but it's it's Buffalo is where, where Canisius is. So how did you get scouted for that? Like, were the scouts just going over the border? Did you did you have to consciously go to a combine or a tryout? No, not at all. Actually, they came out to we played in a couple of tournaments, big tournaments, the St. Mike's tournament, the Runnymede tournament. These were big tournaments in the late seventies, or actually mid seventies. I guess seventy seven was the was when it was. And um, I played with Leo Routens every Saturday. We would play at the Annette Recreation Center with guys like Norman Clark, who also went down to St. Bonaventure, uh, the Jones brothers, Paul and Mark, who, well, Paul and Mark are both in television now. They do the Raptors game, and uh, Paul is down in, in the U. I believe he's still at ESPN and down in, um, 
in Bristol, Connecticut. So I played with some pretty good players back then. And, you know, now that I'm refereeing, I see a bunch of these guys that I either played with and their grandfathers now, and they come out to, you know, cheer their, their grandkids on. It's, it's incredible. It's a small community, but there's a large number of kids playing. And in, in fact, it's as big as, uh, it's as big as hockey is right now. How did you find basketball? Because this was before we had an NBA team up here. How yes. did you find basketball? And who were you rooting for then back then? Who was your NBA team? Because that's one of the that's one of the brilliant things about not having an NBA team, at least at the time, is you get the pick of the litter. No one okay, will question so, why you're a Hawks fan versus a Knicks fan or so forth. So this is where my years of experience, I call it my years of experience comes in. Back in the 70s, there was a team out of Buffalo called the Buffalo Braves, who now are the LA Clippers. So there was basketball very close to here. And sometimes the Buffalo Braves would actually play at Maple Leaf Gardens and they play exhibition games and they actually played regular season game. They played two, I think, regular season games at Maple Leaf Gardens. So, you know, it, it was one of those things that I used to play pickup with my friends. And even when I went into grade nine, I was the smallest, one of the smallest kids in school in grade nine. I was only four feet 10. But then one year I grew six inches, one year I grew seven. And we had a teacher strike and in 1975 and I started playing basketball then a lot more and I just practiced and practiced and practiced and I just had this absolute love for the game and between that and another sport tennis which I picked up a little later became my two uh my two go-to games and I wasn't really a huge I never played a lot of hockey but I still love hockey of course being Canadian did did you follow them to LA and become a Clippers fan no, then I changed affiliations and went to the Washington Bullets because there was a guy, I, I loved the way he played there, uh, called Elvin Hayes, the Big E, as he was known as. So then they showed a whole bunch of the Washington games, and every time they were on, I just I just loved the way they played, and I became a fan of theirs, and then they won the championship, I think, in 77 or 78. Uh, and I, I just stuck with them for the longest time. And then when the Raptors obviously came to Toronto, I became a huge Raptors fan. And it's it's been a good run ever since, I'd say. We've had some bad years, but who would have thought we're bit, NBA championships or yeah, NBA and, champions? And I, and I think, you know, Victor, I, I think the that should be all given credit to. The person who should get the most credit there is Vince Carter. The Vince Carter effect I agree. Is, is, is enormous. It truly is. In fact, last year in the NBA, just to give you a little uh, idea, Canada had the most drafted nba players or actually canada has the most nba players outside of the u.s so there's more canadians playing in second second most country represented in the nba is canada what was number three or what what did we relegate to number three like where did the second source of players come from what happened was the provinces each province has really taken basketball to new heights these kids for some reason once they found out Canada has a team, the growth of all these kids wanting to play is is just grown exponentially. Like I see it every every week because, like I said, I'm on the court probably you know a lot. Last year I did 357 games I refereed, and that was just after the pandemic. This year I'll probably end up doing a, a, a bit more because we're short on referees as well, and the game is growing so fast. And and and, and what I'm really surprised at is little girls are playing basketball and a lot of little girls are playing basketball and they're staying in the sport, which is so great to see. God love the kids. I'm telling you, the parents sacrifice 
so much. They pay so much money to have their kids play basketball. And, and, and I'm in, I'm in awe every week that I go out and I talk to a lot of the parents and it's incredible. It's just the growth of the sport is off the charts. Are you surprised we don't have a WNBA team yet? Cause I, I kind of am. Yes, I, I truly am. And I think that will be coming. I think the WNBA right now is still, I, I would say laying the foundation for the growth of the sport in the U S especially after the pandemic, uh, it actually grew more than any other sport after the pandemic, and it's still growing stronger. And I truly believe, knowing a few of the girls that I have reffed and have gotten scholarships down, who I've seen them go, there's a girl at Connecticut who used to play at Crestwood Preparatory School up here. And, you know, they're going to continue to go down to the U.S. I I refereed a a tournament which was a um, basically an elite club tournament and a lot of these girls who play are a lot of them are going to go on to scholarships and a, and a bunch of them are going to go to the uh, WNBA and the Kia nurse factor is huge as well and Kia you know you see her on TSN a lot and she's really promoting the game the women's game like no one else has and she's a great ambassador for the sport her and Kate Burness who I had the pleasure of knowing and working with at TSN um, you know, for all those years that I was there. Another parallel between you and I is our love of comic books. How did you find it? And who are your heroes? Okay. It's funny that you should say that because it was a buddy of mine, Roy McDonald, and he was into it. And I'm like, really? You're into this? He says, it's going to be worth money one day. You got to buy these these comics. And I go, well, okay. So I started reading some of his and I found myself attracted to Captain America and he was a daredevil guy. So we started going, there was a place down on Markham Street called Captain George, very famous comic place down on Markham Street near Honest Ed's. And I would go in there and we would go in there. And anytime, you know, I'd always ask my mom for a quarter or 50 cents. And I'd go down there and I would start buying comics, start buying comics. And so I started collecting them and reading them. And he said, make sure you put them in plastic. And I go, why would I do that? He goes, because you don't want to, you want to crinkle them. It'll ruin the value. What the hell did I know then about ruining the value of a comic? But I just did what Roy told me to do. And now I've got this collection. I've got Captain America number 100, which was valued at $1,600. I've got a couple of, if, if you know, um, there's a few uh, great artists. I've got like, um, I'm just thinking of Joker number two, or the Joker, the one with Batman number 251, Neil Adams. Who Neil is, Adams, I, he just passed away. He just, it's funny. I was just going to say that. So you do know your comments. Oh, I, I, so I mean, yeah. Danny, Danny O'Neill. Uh, yeah, no, I'm familiar with Neil Adams. Yeah. Uh, Neil Adams, Selva Schuma, Jack Kirby, Steve you know, Ditko, Steve Ditko. Absolutely. So there's now we have another love of sports and comics. And I was really shocked when you said you, you love comics as well, because there's not many people that I run into that say, you know, and, and know who Neil Adams is and the value of what a Neil Adams comic is worth. I got into a lot of his Batman work in the eighties. Right. And I just, cause that's when I started to fall into it. Like, okay, was, uh, did you not have, say, for example, the sixties Batman show kind of push you into it? Cause it did that for me. Like when that came on, Comics were really secondary. It was that show that kind of pushed me into that world. And I kind of tell anyone that will listen that that's the gateway drug. When people are like, oh, Batman is probably the biggest bankable character. I'm like, it's because of that show. That show was appealing to kids and it was larger than life. Agreed. And so was uh, there was the black and white Superman. 
that they used to show on Channel Seven in from Buffalo. And was that the uh, was that the one with oh God, what's his name, George uh, George, George Reeve? Reeves. George Reeves, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's exactly who it was. And let's not forget the very famous Spider-Man cartoon. Oh God, yeah, that that especially that theme song. Right. That theme song will live on forever. It will outlive and the character. There's no kid who grew up in our era or my era and probably your era that will not know that theme song. I've uh, started to sit my little nephew down. He's big into Spider-Man. He's a, he's uh, just over three years old and he'll want to watch the new stuff on Disney plus and I'll pull up the old one and be like, Nope, you need a history lesson. Yeah. And those were all done by cells too, single cells, right? Like, and a buddy of mine, actually the same guy, Roy, he, uh, he collects like uh, cartoon cells and they're worth even more. He's got some that are worth as much as a hundred thousand dollars. And what I found really funny about those cartoons is how they used to recycle the certain certain aspects like Spider-Man swinging through the city. It's like we're going to use this 10 seconds of footage for every episode because that's the only way he's going to get around the, the cost saving measures they had back then. It was great. It was great. You know, it's it's kind of uh, it, it kind of makes us who we are You know, today. That's for sure. Why do you consider your dad as your biggest influence? I was always the class clown in school. I'm still... I joke around, I, even when I'm refereeing and I'm talking to the parents, uh, my humor is what makes me, and anyone who's ever worked with me will tell you, Luch, funny guy, and it's all because of my dad. I mean, I just, he was so funny. He would, you know, mom would be the uh, authoritarian, the disciplinarian in the house, and he would kind of always make jokes about it, and she would get upset with him, and he's still cracking jokes, and so I thought, what a way to live, just joking around all the time. And so, you know what, I looked up to him so much and it, it just saddened me that I lost him at such a young age. You know, I was 20 years old and it, it just ripped my heart. And there isn't, you know, anytime I laugh and he used to, he told me, you know, the one thing he told me, Victor was, he said, you know, my son, he goes, if you can make one person laugh every day, he says, you will lead a very rewarding life. Right. And I'll never forget that as well. So he gave me like, we used to, my friends used to call him the man of reason because he used to have all these little sayings. And one of them was just that, right? Make one person laugh and, you know, and you'll live basically every day, you know, it totally enriched is what he was saying. And, and he was right. I, I love making people laugh. I love laughing myself. My wife and, and I go to a lot of comedy shows and, and laughter is truly the best medicine I find. Do you do any of the Second City shows? Because I find those are fantastic. I have, and but I, we love going to see comics like at Absolute Comedy or Yuck Yucks, and uh, we just actually were one at a, a couple of just a month ago. I saw a friend of mine uh, by the name of Frank Spadoni, uh, Italian guy, and um, he was just again just always laughing, making me laugh. And as he said to me, he says, you know, he's told me a hundred times, Luch, you should become a a stand up because you're a pretty funny guy. And I said, no, I, I I'm more of, uh, you know, give me an improvisation. Maybe I should take Second City classes is what I should do because it's a lot of, it seems like it's a lot of fun. But don't you find we do that in sales anyways? Like you're literally put in front of a room and sometimes what you have to deliver, I'm going to be honest, is boring. Like sometimes the presentation you have to deliver is not very entertaining. So you kind of have to find ways to jazz it up to keep people engaged, especially when everyone's sitting around the table with their phones. And I don't know about you, but one of the worst things that can happen in an in-person meeting, God knows we'll get back to full in-person meeting someday, is when you're yeah. doing your shtick, you're out four or five slides, and you feel like you're in the groove, 
And then one person in the corner picks up their phone and flips it around. And it's like, you can't help but focus on that. And it's, I find that it causes a bit of an imbalance for me when I'm delivering my presentation. And it takes me a while to just, takes me another slide or so to just get back on track. You're absolutely right. It is kind of sad when that happens. And I always used to crack jokes up in meetings. I'd always start off by trying to say something funny, especially when I'm meeting somebody. And it, the the luxury I had was, you know, working in sports for as long as I did was, you know, sports is, can be pretty exciting, but if the, if the audience isn't right, you've got to hold their, uh, what's the word, I guess, the best their attention, saying, their attention. You've got to hold it with, with, you know, something that'll comedy is usually a way out of it. And a lot of times when I used to go out on sales calls with my reps, they would ask me to come because they know that I would always have, I'd always be in the background, but I'd always have something funny to say. And I would say, do you guys really want me to come to this meeting? It doesn't seem like much. And they're like, Luch, seriously, you gotta, you gotta crack these people up because they're pretty boring people. And I'm like, okay, I'll come to the meeting and sure as all hell. You know, I was there for a lot of a couple of times for comedic relief and and it, and it helped make the sale. That's that's the beauty. They'd always thank me at the end. Oh, my God, you were great. And I say, thanks. I didn't think I did anything. You did all the you know, you did all the the heavy lifting. I used to tell them. Well, it's because people want to work with people they enjoy interacting with people that they trust. It's not just always the product, even though in this industry, when you've got behemoths like Meta and Facebook, people can't buy around those they've got to buy through them but it kind of forces us to how do i put it? if you're at a smaller shop it forces you to bring your personality to the meeting people will remember your personality i mean you you've got to separate yourself from everybody else you know because of the metas you know on these big giant conglomerates that have come come to the forefront you know you've got to really figure out how to stand up stand out in front of everybody and unless you use your personality and as a strength you're going to be left behind because people will say hey, you know what i don't really need this guy he's nothing but if you can make an impression and stand out they're going to remember you and they're like you know what yeah let's give this guy a you know let's give him a shot he seems like a really good guy he's funny he's, he's personable and and you know you you move forward with that but nowadays it's it's a grind I, i've got to say i still talk to a lot of people in the industry and a lot of them say, Luch, it's not like it used to be. And and I get that. And I'm just wondering, why did this happen? That's all I wonder is why. Why aren't, the, you know, why are you being ghosted? Why aren't you taking phone calls? And, and everyone says, oh, we're too busy. We're too busy. But is it that? Or has this become an excuse in the industry? We're too busy. Whatever happened to the human interaction, the most personable thing that you can do is talk to another human being. And you know what? Maybe they might have something for you that you can actually use. But you won't know unless you actually pick up a phone or take a meeting. But nowadays, everybody is so busy. You've got to question, you know, where their time management skills is. Your first shot in the working world, though, was sweeping up the floor at your brother-in-law's <laughs> barbershop. Speaking of first. So take us back to that. How, how did that come about? I believe there were child. There weren't even child labor laws back then, <laughs> Victor, to be honest. And there should have been because all, every day, every time he, you know, he cut a head. Or, or hair, should I say head, but you know, I'd be sitting there and I'd have my little broom and he'd make me sweep up the floor. And then he'd give me the dollar at the end of the week to say, thank you. And I'd go and buy candy. And right next door, there was a Becker's. I'll never forget it. There was a oh. Becker's next to uh, his barbershop on, on Dufferin and Castlefield. 
just up the street from Dufford and Rogers where you grew up. So, you know, it was, it was funny. It was, he was a good guy, you know, God rest his soul. He's just, uh, he's a, he was a super guy and he treated me really well. But you credit your first real job, your words at Ontario place. So what were you doing there? Oh, I was uh, one of those kids at 16, I believe I was. And I was uh, sweeping the bridge and sweeping up the, um, the forum. The forum was a great place. They had some unbelievable concerts back then. Right. I so after, the forum. Yeah. So the, the rounding, the, the round the stage. Right. And, and so the groups would go around in a circle, the whole, you know, it would take a little while for it to make a complete revolution. But I was sitting there and I would clean up after after the shows. And it was a great way of meeting girls. I'll tell you that, especially as a young 16 year old Italian boy. Right. Hey, how are you? How are you? Great. You're here for the show. Oh, you know, and, and you just talk to them. It was fantastic. This was well before the Budweiser stage. Oh, yeah. That's basically where it was, where the Budweiser stage is now. And they used to have Children's Village right next door to it as well. So there was like all these rides and there was, you know, these uh, rubber bouncing houses and kids would come there. And, and part of a half of it was a water park. So, and, you know, and I'd be in there sweeping up as well because kids would make a mess and, you know, I'd have to clean the bathrooms and, you know, that was a, that was my first job. It was what it was, but uh, yeah, this was well, well before the uh, Budweiser stage. No, I was going to say before the Molson Amphitheater before that. (laughs) I got to plug the sponsors, right? It's always about the sponsorship. It's always about the sponsors. Well, I, what I remember most is the water park, Blueberry Hill and the forum. Right. Exactly. And, and so Blueberry Hill's a, still there, but there's just nothing happening. It's kind of depressing. I was there with my wife and my dog over the summer, and we were walking around it, and I'm like, this place had so much more going for it. It's it's a real relic of what it used to be, and it's in a way, it's kind of like a mausoleum to your own childhood because you're looking around going, here's everything that I used to enjoy, but I can't really take advantage of it because you can just see things like the bridges, for example, are rusting over. They need a fresh coat of paint. No one seems to be going to the Cinesphere. The forum is still there, but it's in lockdown. You can't actually get into it. And there's a giant water slide that doesn't have any water and no one's sliding down it. Like it's kind of depressing seeing the shape it's been left in. Yeah. The Cinesphere also brought back great memories that you, now that you mentioned that, you know, I totally forgot about the Cinesphere because I would have to go in there and, and sweep up as well. And a, and a funny story was, you know, I was walking on the bridge cleaning up one day and this one guy who was my age, he was trying to impress his girlfriend. He, and he looked over at me and he goes, oh, that must be the sanitation engineer. And I'll never forget, it made me so mad, right? And I turned around and I whacked him with my broom in the back of the head. And he says, I'm going to have you fired. And I went, you go downstairs. I go, that's where my boss's office is. And he, he starts walking back and then I never saw him again. I, I was expecting my boss to call me never called me. I guess he, you know, the threat was there, but he never followed through on it. That's for sure. But it just made me so mad when he called me the sanitational engineer, actually kind of a nice title, really. (laughs) It it does seem very technical. That's for sure. Speaking of being technical, you already mentioned that you went to Seneca for biology. So why biology? How did you find yourself studying that? Because we know you ended up in advertising and biology isn't the normal path into advertising. No, it definitely isn't. And it's funny because I loved biology in school. I really did. And I thought I was going to be a doctor. And then I I realized, oh, you have to be like smart to be a doctor. And I go, hmm, this just may not work. And I did well, but my marks were in the 70s. You know, it was not, 
you know, the nineties that I needed to get into med school. So, you know, I, I ended up working, uh, after there, I ended up working in accounting at the ministry of health. So, uh, that was my first real, real job in accounting of all things. And I hated it. And I lasted a few, a little while there. And then I went into retail for about six or seven years working at Granada television. Uh, as a, that was a name first... I have not heard in a while. <laughs> and I used to, and there's, and I was the youngest regional manager at the age of 31. I was in charge of seven stores and then the retail rental market collapsed. And that was the end of that. So, you know, it was a fun job. It was a great job. Um, met a lot of my friends that I still to this day talk to and keep in touch with. And it was just, you know, whenever you get a bunch of guys who are into sports and you're working at the same place, it doesn't matter what industry you're in and you can have these long, you know, long-term relations with you, you feel, okay, that was, that was destined to happen. So yeah, it, it was a fun place though. Granada was great. It's crazy. There doesn't even seem to be much of an electronics market anymore. It's like, you've got your computer, which can serve as everything. You've yes. got your television. It's like one place that I used to frequent was remember Cromer radio. Oh, absolutely. On, uh, I yeah. On Bathurst. Yeah. Bathurst. Yeah. The big and, yellow and black sign. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I used to, when I was a teenager, that's where I got my second car stereo from and you can't even get car stereos anymore. Like that's just not the way they're set up for that. Like that whole market is completely evaporated. It's now just Bluetooth your phone to whatever you have your car and then just let your Spotify playlist take over. And that's that. Can I ask you one question about Chroma yeah. radio? Did yeah, go for it. Blau Did you have a blow punked? I have no idea what that is. Blow punked was the, the name of the actual company that, that made the actual, uh, the stereo system. It was a blow. Oh, no, stereo. It, what did you it have? It was a Sony. It was a Sony. Oh, Sony's yeah. were pretty good too. It right? had so a detachable were... faceplate, which was supposed to deter, uh, thieves it didn't <laughs> but they still i'm sure they yeah i did i my first stereo face plate i remember forget they stole it and i'm just like you're kidding me they stole it and oh i still had God. i had the face plate so through insurance i went to cromer got a new one put in with another detachable face plate and that one that one lived on but it was still funny that that didn't stop them oh how good was that if that anyone's wondering that's how we used to deter car stereo thieves that was a thing they didn't take the whole car just your stereo in the middle of the night and yeah. you could take the faceplate off oh how times have changed eh, pal? oh believe me yeah <laughs> things have changed quite a bit but okay so you moved into reach from retail and then into media but it didn't start immediately in media when you landed at the financial post so tell us about your first role there because you were working in the event space yes i was in uh i was the conference manager basically business manager slash conference manager and I was given an opportunity uh, by a great guy who, you know, sadly passed away a few years ago by the name of Tom Holmes. What a wonderful man he was. And he basically gave me my a crash course in business 101. He was he had two degrees from Harvard and he was just an absolutely brilliant guy. And I, I looked up to him so much. And as a conference manager, it, it was a great, great gig. I got to know a lot about different businesses, whether it was mergers and acquisition, the healthcare industry. We ran a conference on doing business with Aboriginal Canada. We did uh, the automotive industry was a big, big conference that we used to run every year. So I, I got to learn a lot about a lot of different areas. And as well, while I was there, I got to meet a lot of my friends in uh, advertising. 
And that's when I started to get the bug because I made a lot of friends and they would talk about it and they kept saying, Lucci should come over to advertising. Lucci should come over to advertising. But I never got the real opportunity, uh, but I knew I wanted to go into sales. And that's when I, because I was at the Financial Post, I ended up working in the data group. And in the data group, I was able to sell uh, um, online financial services. And that's where I got a lot of my selling experience. That's where, you know, I got to, um, you know, bite my, uh, get my, um, as they say, get the whistle wet in, 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 in advertising uh, or in, in selling. And so that's, you know, a person, a person took a, a, a chance on me and it just developed from there. And then from there, I was with a friend of mine who was over on the canoe side and they were literally next door and she was selling advertising and she says, you know, you should try to come over. We need a sales rep. And I met a guy by the name of David Schwamm who said, the reason I, you know, the reason I brought you over was there's something about you that I like. I didn't, yeah, I know you don't have any experience. You've ne I'll never forget those words. He says, you've never carried the bag per se, right? Which means I didn't really call on agencies or, you know, nothing to do with advertising. He says, but you know what? My gut feeling says, Lucha, I got to hire you. I have to hire you. And he did. And I didn't let him down. You know, in my first year, I brought in over a million dollars in sales. And that was my first jump into the advertising game. And then from there, you made it to the mother of all sports stations. Did you feel like you died and gone to heaven when you landed at TSN? <laughs> yeah, I actually did. It was like, pinch me. This isn't really happening because it, and it was by, it was funny because when I was at Canoe, I went to a Toronto Argonauts, by the way, the current Grey Cup champions. I shout went out to, to them, yeah. Shout out, shout out to the Argos. And I went to a, a, um, a, a Toronto Argonaut press conference, and I ran into a friend of mine who I knew was at TSN, Keith Pelly. And this would be the same Keith Pelly who is the uh, commissioner of the DP World Golf Tour right now. And he was, as at that time, he's vice president of programming. And he asked me what I was doing there. And I told him, and he asked me about his website. And I said, yeah, I'm on it every single day. And he says, well, you know, I said to him, how much money are you guys bringing in, right, in terms of sales? Because I was at Canoe and I was bringing in a million dollars. And he told me $300,000. And I went, are you kidding me? That's it? I go, my target's a million, right? I could bring in a million easy. And he says, are you kidding me? He goes, there's actually a you know, there, there's actually a case study there that you can actually make that kind of money in this business. And I said, seriously? And he goes, I want you to come in and meet one of the vice presidents, another vice president by the name of Bart Yabsley. And Bart, who happens to be now the current president of Sportsnet, uh, I met him and, and I, he said to me, tell Bart what you told me. I said, about what? He goes, how much money you can bring in? I said, I can bring in a million dollars. And he says, really? There's actually value in this like digital stuff? And I go, well, what's wrong with you people? And he goes, okay, so if we hired you, you can bring in a million dollars in your first year. I said, absolutely, no question. So literally within two days, they called me and they said, okay, we want you to come in. We want to hire you. And the rest, as they say, was history. My first year, I brought in $1.36 million. I'll never forget that number as long as I live. I've had a couple of instances like that in my digital career where you kind of have to gently tell people the internet's catching on. It's only yeah. going to go up from here if you do it correctly. Like people are going to stick with this thing. Yeah, it was, it was great. In my last year, you know, working with TSN and RDS, which I was in charge of overall, 
that brought in $25 million. That's a lot of money. That is know? a lot of money. It's a lot of cash in digital sales. One of my favorite stories is, you know, I, I went to Universal Music and the girl there didn't believe that, you know, this media thing was catching on this digital stuff. And they ran um, trailers on their own website. And I said I could measure it on my website. And I asked her how many downloads or how many times that, you know, in a month. And she says, oh, we got about 1300 views in a month. And I said, wow, that's it, eh? And I put it on TSN and they ended up over 10,000 trailer views. And we were able to measure that. And she freaked out all of a sudden. She started giving me $5,000 buys. And the first year she gave me four of them, which was $20,000. And by, you know, the third or fourth year after that, she was still a great client of mine and was giving me $100,000 a year just in uh, movie trailers. See, I love that case study because sometimes you have to start out small with people. Some people, they need a sample. That's what they need more than anything else, just to know it's going to work before they I open up her, their wallet. I gave her a free ad campaign. It was a free, the first one was a free ad campaign just to show her that it would work. And she was so impressed by the numbers that she, she goes, okay, yeah, you convinced me. And that's what you have to do sometimes. Like you need to, you know, crack open the door. And even if it has to, you have to give away some of the, give away some of the business to, to, to prove it. I mean, it was an unknown entity, entity back then, right? So I had to do something. And I said, and I even told my boss, I said, I might have to give her a free campaign. He goes, do what you got to do, Luch. You know this business better than anybody else. So I did. And the rest, as they say, is history. Do you remember the movie that uh, you ran? Yeah, for free? it was It was called Undercover Brother. It was the... the uh, oh, the, geez, the, I remember that. Funny, yeah. Yeah. If you mess with the fro, you gots to go. That yes, was the I remember that. that. Was that uh, okay? Undercover Brother was the name of the movie. Without using my phone, was that a Wayne's Brothers film? You know what? I don't know if it was a Wayne's Brother. It may have been. You may need to look that one up. But I'll never I want to look that, that one line. up. I'll never forget that line. Undercover Brother was the name of the movie. I do remember it like it was yesterday. The one downside to working in sports, though, is, is that very rarely does the company own the IP. And every couple of years, this stuff goes onto the market and people open up their wallets and they fight with each other for it. And so tell us what happened at TSN and how that brought you to Sportsnet. As much as I love my, my good friend, Keith Pelly, he also kind of shafted me on this one because, because he was actually in line for a promotion to be the head of, um, the head of Bell Media at the time. And I know I'm, I'm telling tales out of, uh, what are they, how do these, how's the saying go? Tales out of school. And he wanted to take all of the digital and broadcast rights away from TSN when he was, because at the time he was president of Sportsnet. So him and um, what was the CEO's name? Mohammed. Um, can't remember his name off uh, totally, but he was it the CEO at Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. Was it, was it Nadir? Nadir Mohammed. Thank you. Yeah. And so him and Nadir wanted to put the screws to TSN and Bell Media. And what they did was they overpaid and they grossly overpaid and they know they grossly overpaid for that, right? Because they were counting on new media that was going to happen over the next 12 years. Well, here we are, I think in year eight or year seven of this, uh, of this deal, which is backloaded. Uh, it, it's going to be tough, you know, for Rogers to continue to make money on this because of the fact that it is backloaded. 
even if the the Leafs were to win the Stanley Cup, right? But you know what? After we lost the, but what ended up happening is we lost the hockey contract. I was asked by our president at the time how much this is going to cost in terms of revenue, and I said when I did the actual calculations, and I had to be truthful, I said it's, we're going to probably end up losing four million this year. Like our our our, our revenue is going to probably drop about four million dollars. And at that time, just TSN was bringing in twelve. So you're looking at about a 25% loss in revenue year the year after uh, Rogers got the contract. I was asked to go to Rogers from my good friend, Alan Dark, great guy. And I went over there and I was there for about just under a year because what ended up happening there was I reported it into sports and under Anthony Attard, another great, great guy. You, you may know him. Well, he's um, XMLSE, I believe. XMLSC, that's right. Super, super, super guy. And Atard brought me, you know, I was reporting into him and then they decided they're going to uh, centralize everything. So it'll be under the digital umbrella as opposed to the sports umbrella. So they wanted to do that. And then they figured they don't need a sales manager, which I was the national sales manager for them. And so they said, sorry, Lucia, you got to go. And I said, can they do that? And I went to see a lawyer, but they made me an incredible offer. So my lawyer basically just said, sign up, get out, go do what you got to do, but you got to take that deal. So I did. And, and, uh, so I left there, but on good terms, it wasn't, it wasn't anything that I could say was bad terms. So I've got nothing but praise for my, you know, my former brethren at, uh, at Rogers for sure. That hockey deal you reference, I've got another point of view on it. So I cut my teeth and broadcast at the CBC. And I remember at least once or twice a year, Bell Media would be doing an interview, usually at the Globe and Mail, talking about how they were going to buy the hockey rights. And I was at CBC when we lost the hockey song. Like no one bothered to, it seems like no one bothered to look at the contract to see, hey, you know what? We don't own this and someone else could scoop it up. And I, I was there when the hockey, the hockey song was bought by TSN and it felt like, or at least a lot of people thought that the, that the world was going to end. And then I moved on through my career and I was actually at Rogers when Rogers won the hockey deal. And I find it so fascinating that everyone had their eye on Bell Media, like Bell Media is going to get the hockey rights. No one was looking at TSN or sorry, at, at Rogers and they scooped Correct. them up out of nowhere. And I remember when that press release came out and everyone was celebrating it, there was a pit in my stomach because I was thinking about my old friends and colleagues at CBC because I looked at that and said, I'm sure some of them will be fine. Some of them might migrate over to Sportsnet, which they did, but there are going to be some people that are, for lack of a better term, SOL. Like it's, they're going to have to downsize because I knew just how big hockey was to the CBC. And so that was, that was a real rude awakening for me as well. I mean, I, I had no skin in the game whatsoever, so it's not right. like I'm taking anything personal by looking at it, but that was a real eye opener for me. And it showed that while sports can be incredibly lucrative, it can be very volatile. Like it can up and move in a heartbeat. No, I, I totally agree with you. And and that's, that's the one thing that people don't realize is that, you know, these companies sign these multi-billion dollar deals and multi-billion dollar rights deals. But what ends up happening is because of it, lives and families are shattered. They really are because a lot of people are going to lose their job. And at TSN, there was a lot of us that lost our jobs. It was pretty much carnage over there. And you know what? And I know it, it, the carnage has happened at Rogers as well, because we know that they're over, they overpaid for this hugely. And, you know, 
I wish them all the best there, but there's going to be cuts made. Uh, chances of a guy like, I don't see a guy like Ron McLean being able to last another year, right? And and there's going to be others. You know, they 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 dropped hometown hockey because it was just too expensive to keep running with hometown hockey. Well, when they brought him over, didn't they relegate him and put George Strombolopoulos at the forefront? And then after about a year, George was uh, George was moved into the background, and then Ron was back to being the face of hockey. That's exactly what happened. It was for two years that George was there. And, you know, I got to meet George. Great guy. Really, really He's, good he's fantastic. Loves, he really super, is. Super. And a great interviewer. Fantastic interviewer, as you know, and now living in L.A. And just uh, overall, what I really found is that, you know, they couldn't make up their mind which way they go. They, they wanted that cool factor, right? So they brought George in as the cool guy because he is a pretty cool guy. You know, and, and the way he dresses, the way he acts, the way he carries himself. But it just wasn't cutting it with the core hockey audience, right? It wasn't the, the hockey audience loved Ron McClain and they kept wanting him back. Now, what from what I'm hearing is that people do not like Ron McClain, obviously because of what happened with Don Cherry. And, mm. you know, he that he's getting a little bit stagnant right now. That's what I'm well, hearing. At the annual Ron McClain, Gary Bettman interviews, who. <laughs> Those were great. He would yeah. just, he would, uh, he would not pull his punches. You, do, you don't see a lot of sports interviews like that, especially between the rights holder of, uh, of a professional sport and the commissioner of that league. I, I agree with that. Very totally contentious. Agree. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I, I just wonder why Gary, I'm surprised Gary hasn't told him the, you know, that he's not going to do it if he continues the line of questioning, but you know what? Gary's a tough cookie. I've met him three times. I got to go to three all-star games and met him all three times as the guest of the NHL because I had to negotiate the digital rights when I was at TSN uh, in the early days. So I got to go to Minnesota, Dallas, and um, Atlanta back then for where, for the All-Star Games. And I got to meet Gary. Nice enough guy, but tough as nails, I'll tell you right now. You could see he's just got he, – he's a different cat. That's for sure. He takes a lot of flack in Canada for what happened with – the old Jets and the Nordiques, but I got to mm-hmm. give him credit for how he really, really helped put hockey on the the U.S. map, at least in the 90s. Like, I know it's tapered off a bit, but I still believe that hockey would not be as big as it is in the United States right now had it not had that boom period in the 90s. 100% agree with you. 100%. Like, I, I really think right now his only flaw, Gary Bettman, is, is he's just hanging on to the Phoenix Coyotes. Like, what aren't they playing in like a university arena now where it's like, enough for five to six thousand people the mullet arena the first night everybody was was uh, given like mullet wigs and they all wore mullets it was incredible like it's just that's the university of arizona like it's just crazy it's and and it fills up every night and it's just a crazy atmosphere you know i thought las vegas was a crazy atmosphere but apparently arizona is just as nuts right and it's only five thousand people so they're selling out every game See, I give him credit for Vegas, like the fact that everyone else wanted to stay away from that market, apart from an all-star or an exhibition game, just because it was the only state that league had allowed gambling. And they figured that that would, the black market would impact this, would infiltrate the sport, the sport itself. I give him credit for saying, you know what, screw it. We're going all in there. Like everyone else is following suit. Now you got the Raiders in there. I know the NBA has had at least one all-star game in Vegas. I'm surprised they don't have a franchise there yet. I'm surprised major league baseball isn't there yet, but credit to him for going all in on Vegas and just doing it. No pun intended all in. I'm making it sound like he's gambling, but he kind of is a little (laughs) bit with house money when he does that. 
Yeah, and you know what? You can't. You know how expensive the seats are now over there to get tickets. It's incredible. Yeah. It truly is incredible, and it sells out every game. Every game is sold out, and they're doing well again this year with Jack Eichel, of course, which is a uh, a little sore point with me being a Sabres fan. But that's that. We we digress there. They are they what first or second in the West? They're they're definitely uh, they're in the first. top three. They're 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 first? they're they're first in the uh, in the Pacific. Yeah, they're uh, head and shoulders above everyone else in that division. But nice to see the Kraken doing well as well. That is good. It's nice to see the franchise or the the new franchises do well because you kind of feel like I mean I, I kind of use the Grizzlies, the Vancouver Grizzlies as an example of that. You kind of have this sort of five to seven year window to find some semblance of success, right? And if that doesn't happen, then you start hearing, you know, rumors of relocation. Well, yeah, especially if people aren't showing up, right? And that's what happened with the Grizzlies. Nobody started showing up. So they went to Memphis. And uh, it's 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 a success story with what the Grizzlies have done in Memphis, that's for sure. Do you think Vancouver would be ready for another franchise? Like, do you think maybe they were just a little ahead of their time? Personally, I don't, know. There's enough basketball on the West Coast in L.A., Portland, um, you know, you've got two LA teams. You got the clip, well, the Clippers, the Lakers, Golden State. That's three. You had uh, the Supersonics are gone though. They've been gone for a while. They've been gone for a while. Yeah, I was shocked that that happened. So if Seattle, which is probably as close to Vancouver as you can get with a U.S. major market, and if they failed, yeah, you've got to question that whole, you know, northern north uh, northwest region of the U.S. and how basketball crazy they are which i don't think they are it's a it's more of a laid back vibe out that way so i'm not sure if they're ever going to get a team back there do you follow the canadian elite basketball league i follow some of it um i haven't gone to see the games yet mike morreale who used to play with the argos is the commissioner there and david tom is the i believe he's one of the vice presidents there he was with uh north pole hoops in toronto here so they've got a really good product going there. And I believe Drake is part owner of the, the Scarborough uh, shooting stars, Scarborough shooting stars. Yeah. So they, uh, I want to get out. I didn't get a chance to get out this year. I actually, one of my buddies is a referee in the, he's ref the CEBL. So, and he says, um, it's, it's good ball. It's pretty good ball. He really, he really likes it. He goes, a lot of these guys are, you know, some of the guys are going to make the show for sure. Right. So it's, it's, it's worth going out and uh, I, I, I'll give the CBL a definite plug because it's good ball. Anytime you get to see that kind of caliber, it, it, it's pretty impressive. I've been following them on social media and I've watched I've watched the clips on YouTube that they throw up. And sometimes you can find a full game up there. And what I've kind of discerned is it's a lot like the CFL in some of the bigger markets in Ontario. Maybe it's not getting the attention it deserves. But when you start to get out west, like where the Saskatchewan Rattlers play, I think Edmonton. they just move. Edmonton as well. They just moved the uh, Guelph, uh, the Guelph uh, franchise is moving to Calgary, and I think they just yeah. moved the Fraser Valley uh, franchise to Vancouver proper. I don't know how that one's going to pan out, but it seems like when you get into the Prairie Provinces and the Rockies, they really appreciate it. Like it seems to get a pretty good pull from uh, the local markets. Well, yeah, we're kind of spoiled here in Toronto, being as monster of a market as we are. So. You know, if you've ever been to uh, Saskatoon, you know how rabid they are about their Rough Riders out there. There's nobody yes. in the CFL that has fans like the Rough Riders. I'll say that to anybody who's who's who loves football and knows the CFL. 
it's a different it, they're cut from a different cloth out that way man but i'll tell you when you get like pro sports or semi-pro sports out into those small markets it's incredible how much they you know how many how many people go out to watch it's really really well um it, it's really well followed out that way okay we got sidetracked a little bit but after sportsnet you moved on to yes. Q Digital Media. So what brought you there and what were you doing at Q? Actually, first give us an overview. What is Q Digital Media? Q was a, um, it's basically an aggregate. Um, it's, it's an ad, it's an ad house, right? So what they basically did was they represented a whole bunch of different sites. And, um, and some of those, and they had some really, really, really good products, brands, I should say, like NFL.com. We repped Bleacher Report, UFC, SB Nation. I mean, those were the sports sites. Vox.com, Daily Mail from England, CNN, Rolling Stone. Some, so there were some really great titles uh, run by a gentleman by the name of David UK, super guy. And, you know, and it was, it was fun. It was fun. I had six reps working for me. And it was just one of those places where you talked advertising, you talked sports and regular, you know, advertising uh, just basically advertising talk all day long and a, a great place to hang out really was i was the uh i was the director of sales there so you know like i said after a year and a half though of being there i just said i need a break from advertising i just need to get away for a little bit so i took some time off bringing everything full circle yeah Something that uh, you've been suffering from that a lot of people do in this industry, and I'm finding that it's pretty endemic of the Canadian advertising and marketing world is ageism. So talk to us about how it's impacted you in your career and how you're trying to counter it, because this is something that, you know what, if we don't find a way to fix this and deal with this head on, because we need to start treating and, and, I, and I'm speaking about experience when I use this term our senior leaders, if we are not giving them the respect they deserve, they deserve and the opportunities they deserve and that, and the opportunities that can be passed down to us, like just the chance to impart that kind of knowledge and experience on a new generation. I think we're really selling ourselves short. And at the same time too, we have to understand that everyone's going to get there. It reminds me of, have you seen the film Rocky Balboa? Of course. There's a scene where the fight's done between Rocky and Mason Dixon or Mason, the line Dixon is the name of his opponent. And right. they get close to each other and he leans into him and he says, you're a crazy old man. And he goes, you'll get there. And it's just, it's funny because people will make comments or jokes or they'll employ ageism. And at the same time too, it's like, what you think you're going to stay young forever. You're not going to be at that position. So we need, this is something we need to work together on. I know I'm rambling right now, but just take us through that. No, you're, you're not rambling. I, I hate to say you're, what you're doing is you're hitting the nail on the head. Let me give you an example. I am the liaison officer slash and education officer for the Toronto Association of Basketball Officials. One of my job is to recruit new referees and train new referees on how to become referees. And a lot of these kids that come in and some older people as well come in and they rely on me to basically show them the ropes and they get to referee games with me. And one thing I keep getting over and over is, you know what, Luch, when you're refing, you seem extremely calm, no matter what the circumstances on the court, you really know your stuff. And I, I use this as a parallel to my working world, because if 
the Toronto Basketball Association, you know, of officials trust me to bring along their new referees. In other words, help them become referees. Why aren't more companies using senior exec, like even as myself, who was a fairly senior executive or on the executive committees, why are they not using me and my experience to help these younger salespeople get to the next level? They can rely on my experience. I could tell them how to, you know, manage certain clients, how to handle certain situations. So, you know, as I say, the problem you know, is that there's so much bias about it. And as I said, ageism is not based on biology. It's socially constructed. And that's where herein lies the problems, Victor. This is where I get really upset. There's a stigma in business that people, especially older people, right? And, you know, they think that because of their physical or mental capacity, you know, they think that, oh, they're going down. That's not ageism. That's ableism. And there's a difference between ableism and ageism. I know that I'm still able because I run up and down the court. I run my butt off at my age up and down the court and people can't believe how old I am that I'm running up and down the court and making great calls. And so when you, when you tie this back into business and I know that I'm still able. So sadly, ableism and ageism to me has gotten, is, is brushed with the same stroke. And that to me, my friend, is a mistake. Something you said in there really resonates with me. Like the whole thing resonated with me, but you spoke about how when you're on the basketball court, people can't believe how calm and collected you are. Like right. when something happens, you're not losing your shit. No. And it's funny because I've been in the advertising industry since I was 24, 25, I'm 40 right now. And mm. I look back and go, my God, the way I was in meetings before, like I wasn't bad, I'd say, but I was a little bit more eccentric. If someone said the wrong thing, maybe I'd react a little too emotionally. And right now I feel I'm handling things better than I ever could. And that's because of experience. And I feel like five years from now, I'm going to handle things even better. I'll look back at from 45. I'll look back at 40 and go, Jesus, there are things I could have done a lot differently. And it seems like we're not putting value in experience anymore. So I just wanted to let you know that I completely empathize with you. And without making this about me and going into details at 40, I've had a couple of bouts of ageism already, like nothing big, but little things that kind of popped up that kind of spoke to me and made me say, huh, you know what? If I don't find a way to nip some of this stuff in the butt right now, it's only going to get worse as every yeah. year progresses. Right now it's like, it's totally, you know, prevalent. It's unrecognized. And it's unchallenged. And that's a problem because it's not really being challenged. You know, there were other movements that have come forward and they've been challenged. Now, ageism is one of those things that is starting to get a little bit with, you know, the Lisa Laflamme situation that happened a few months back. But it's still, you know, it's still not where it should be. People aren't talking enough about it. People aren't allowing, you know, people in their 40s, middle 40s, late 40s, 50s, 60s, to go out and you know what bring them on board and let's see what they can do let's see how they can help out you know and, and but the problem is a lot of these companies feel they have to overpay these people and some people like myself i don't need a big you know six-figure paycheck like i used to i don't need that anymore you know i'd love to just go in for the sake of helping out and being part of a team sitting down with people ideating with them you know coming up with solutions I'm a solutions focused guy. That's what I did best. You know, I used to tell my sales guys, listen, guys, don't come to me with a problem. Come with me, come to me with a problem, but also come to me with a solution, a possible solution. 
And what I'll do is I'll sit down with you and we'll work on it together, but at least think about the problem. Like think about how we're going to solve this. Don't just come to me and say, Hey, Luch, we got a problem. Okay. Well, so did Houston at one time and we know how that worked out. Right. So that's why I say, Hey, you know what, let's, let's work on things together. And it's amazing what you can, you know, you get young people and uh, older people together. You'd be shocked at what you can, you, you, you can accomplish, right? Because you'll, younger people may not have, they don't have the experience that you have, but then you don't have the, you know, you might not have the, the get up and go that a younger person may have, right. Who's just so energized and they've got tons of energy, but what they don't have is they don't have the knowledge. They don't have the experience. They don't, a lot of them don't have the, just the how to simple, how to, have you tried to do this? Have you tried to do this? Have you tried to do this? Oh, okay. That kind of makes sense. Well, yeah, it's because I've lived it. I know what it felt like. Right. And I've walked in your shoes. I can empathize. I can sympathize. I've been there before. Right. But you've got all this energy. Let me help you achieve what you need to achieve, but even doing it faster. And also the people experience as well, too, because you can teach someone something technical and maybe it takes them a week to learn it, a month to learn it and so forth. But the people skills that come with selling, that's like doing reps, reps, reps. It's like how many meetings are you pumping out, going through those meetings? And it only comes with time. Like you can't not make up 20 years worth of experience in three to four years. You just can't do that at all. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and you know what sales sometimes it just becomes reflexive because you've got all these experiences that you've developed over the years. So what happens is you get into a situation and you can, it's like sports, like anything you do in sports, you know, like the St. Louis blues, for example, they lost eight in a row and everybody was writing them off. And on my podcast, which by the way, you want to plug it, go for it. Now's a perfect, I love that segue. All right. The best damn fantasy hockey podcast. And it is on Spotify. So if you get a chance to listen and you're a hockey fan, Definitely listen to it. But as I was saying, the St. Louis Blues had lost eight games in a row. And one of the things my my partner in this said to me is, do you think they're going to come out of it? And I said, absolutely. And he says, well, why do you think that? I said, because they can rely on past experience. They just won the cup. The majority of those guys just won the cup. So they know what it takes to get out of a funk like that. And it's no different than in, in sales. When you're in sales or you're in marketing, sometimes you're going to get into a situation where Things are not going your way. So um, what ends what ends up happening is you rely on past experiences to get you out of those bad experiences. So this is why I, you know, I say that, you know, the veterans, as I call us in, in the advertising game, we still have a place to help out the younger generation without question. Tony, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Go ahead. I'm ready to rock and roll the campaign you're most proud of the campaign i'm most proud of was uh nike golf and getting them on the masters for nine consecutive years they were a great partner and they spent lots of money with me so i was great it was great dealing with those guys your favorite movie two of them actually godfather trading places i had to throw comedy in there as well A very Italian, the Godfather, like the Godfather, not number two or number three. One and two. I will never talk about number three. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? I don't think there's any question. Sir Alfredo James Pacino from New York City. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love Al. Love Big Al. I love that scent of a woman reference right there. Yeah, I had to. (laughs) 
my follow-up to that question if hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story what would you call it a living and loving life and laughing a lot of elves goes with luch your favorite book open by andre agassi fantastic read your favorite song so many but my overall the one i just absolutely love is i am the walrus by the beatles the best advice you have ever received Back to good old dad, always said to me, treat a woman like gold and she will treat you like gold. Treat her like crap and expect to be treated like crap. And that was when I was 17 years old and those words have never left me. Amen to that. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I would be probably teaching tennis as a career because I, it was a big part of my life. I did teach it for four years. I love the game. The game has given me a lot of opportunities and a lot of fun. And it's really helped me stay in shape for many, many, many years. Tony, this was a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for your time. Victor, I absolutely adored it. I loved it. I appreciate everything you're doing for this and for the media. And hopefully one day we can actually talk about more about comic books because that is well i will never get tired of talking about that that's it for today's show for more episodes you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts and don't forget to follow me on instagram at vic genova